Brothers and sisters, I'm sure you're aware. <clears throat> it's been a hard week at Canyon Bible Church. There are a lot of people in our church suffering right now. Quite a few people not here with us this morning because they're homesick. Quite a few people with us, not with us this morning because they're watching the live stream from the hospital. Many of you have been battling sickness. At the ripe age of 43, I can testify that getting old is not for the faint of heart. And many of you assure me it gets better. Many of you are experiencing trials in your life right now. The, the rest of you will be experiencing trials very soon. What makes us worse is you know people who hate God who are really doing pretty great. And I just want to ask the obvious question. If God is good and God is in control of everything, then why are so many of God's people suffering while there are so many unbelievers out there prospering? Well, there's no surer source for answers to life's most difficult questions than for us to turn our attention to the Scripture. And the Bible doesn't shy away from difficult questions like this either. So this morning we're going to look at Psalm 73. And often the Psalms start with a question, sometimes even made as a statement in the introduction. You're familiar with the beginning of Psalms like, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? And then the whole Psalm is about the answer to that question, or a problem is stated in the beginning, and then the whole psalm is about the solution to that problem, and such is the case with Psalm 73. This morning, we'll ask the questions that the psalmist Asaph asks, and then look at the answer that he gives. First three verses are kind of an introduction to the temptation that he's facing, You'll notice it says a psalm of Asaph. The, the superscript of the psalms is actually part of the inspired text of Scripture, so we know that this is a psalm written by Asaph. We don't know the exact context, but we do know that Asaph was one of three of Berechiah's sons. Asaph and his two brothers were appointed by King David to be worship leaders in the tabernacle, in the temple. Uh, so probably the context of this psalm is when Asaph is serving and leading worship under the leadership of King David, and of course we know that the Psalms are the, the hymnal, the hymn book of the temple for, the, uh, for God's people. And he starts out, verse 1, this is what I know. This is what I know to be true. Here's the, the truth stated in verse 1. Take a look at it. He says, truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. You'll notice this is somewhat of a Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament, right? God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Asaph is making a theologically true statement here. This is the very truth he is about to tell us that he was struggling to believe. So, now the temptation stated in verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He says, I know God is good to those who love him, but I have just come back from a deep temptation to believe the opposite. 
So Asaph, the worship leader, writes this song out of a very personal struggle he experienced, not not as a theologian approaching the problem of evil in the world, not as a philosopher ascending to the debate stage, not as a public speaker crafting his oratory, but as an impassioned struggler, as a sinner saved by grace, as one for whom the desperate temptation was so strong that he now feels as though he had barely escaped the very fires of hell and lived to tell the tale, and he puts it down on paper to tell us. And what was this temptation that he feels almost took him out at the knees? The truth disputed in verse 3. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So you have the truth disputed here. I know what's true, but man, I, I almost lost my footing because... This truth was disputed in the way that I see the world. This word prosperity here, the prosperity of the wicked, wicked. prosperity is the Hebrew word you know, shalom. It means peace, prosperity, blessing, favor. So you can imagine the the prosperity of the wicked, the, the shalom of the wicked, a phrase which makes no sense, a farce which has no place in this world. How can there be shalom for the wicked. But you'll notice the real problem is not out there, it's in here. He says, I was envious. Asaph recognizes this is a heart issue. This is kind of an emotional moment for him to pen this. You can imagine to take some of your deepest struggles and to put them down on paper The temptation then that Asaph faced is this. I know theologically, I know that God is good to those who love him. But as I started looking around at the unbelievers that are all doing so well, and I see so many of my believing friends and even my own self struggling and suffering, and I look at a nation crumbling under the weight of unrighteousness, I feel my feet of faith just slipping I just wonder if there's anybody here this morning that can understand exactly how Asaph is feeling. So first, Asaph's going to elaborate on the apparent evidence that was undermining his faith. The apparent evidence in verses 4 through 12. I say apparent evidence because Asaph knows, he knows that he's not so much speaking to the reality of the wicked universally, but the appearances in the moment of temptation when we're not thinking clearly, like this is how it feels to me when I'm struggling with this, this is what it seems like to me. So the apparent evidence is, first, their lack of troubles in verses 4 and 5. Take a look at it in your Bible there. Verse 4 says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In other words, they sin You'd think God would strike them dead painfully, but He doesn't. Instead, they're good-looking. That's not fair. And they're healthy. That's not fair. And they're rich, and they're celebrated. That doesn't feel fair. Verse 5, he says, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. 
Seems like everything's going great for them. They don't have to work as hard as the rest of us do. Stock market collapses and your 401k turns into a 200.5 LMNO, and somehow their portfolio isn't touched. How did that happen? The cost of living goes up and inflation hits and we're all struggling financially, and they go out and buy a Tesla or buy a Twitter. Satan is boxing me around like Mike Tyson, and my neighbor, who hates God, is sitting over there enjoying the fight with ringside seats and a pina colada in his hands. So Asaph is saying that the first apparent evidence is their lack of troubles. It's disturbing. And it's not that he's wishing bad on them. Remember, it's envy he's struggling with. That's not fair. I'm the one living for Jesus. Why is it so tough for me? Why am I going through this right now? Look at them. The second of Asaph's apparent evidence, the appearance of things in the moment of temptation that suggests to him that God is not good to those who love him. Second, their lives of transgression. Look at verses 6 and 7. Sinful people are living lives of transgression and it apparently, apparently is working out really well for them. Verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Necklaces, garments, or things you decorate yourself, he points at them and says, they decorate themselves with pride and violence. Sounds like the entertainment industry in America. We see this insane amount of boasting and pride in riches and violence. Verse 7 their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with folly. The picture of swelling eyes is not that they like, need to go see a doctor or that they need to go to you know, 24-hour fitness. This, this fatness he's talking about is, you, you can imagine it in a, in a culture where you can't just run to the grocery store and pick up groceries, where food is not quite as easy to come by, that to be fat means to be successful and rich, as opposed to the emaciated poor. The picture here is everything is going smoothly for them. They're overflowing with sin, and Asaph's looking over there like, Lord, I really want to sin. It seems like it's going really good for them, God. Satan seems to be giving them everything that they want in this life, all the sin they can dream up, and they're having a blast. Their lives of transgression are just over the top. And I can see 27 things that would go wrong for me if I tried that. But it somehow is working for them. So they're getting all the sin that they can think of, not facing any of the consequences, having a blast, and now what's worse is the way that they're talking about us and God. Look at verses 4 and 5, their lips of treason. Sorry, this is going to be verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. Literally, this is they speak from on high. You get this, the, the condescending attitude of unbelievers as they make fun of Christians, making fun of our way of life. I can remember this clearly when I was not a believer. I didn't get saved until I was 22, 23 years old. And in college, in Waco, Texas, I worked at On the Border, home of the greatest chips and salsa on the planet. My manager there was John Paul, and he was a Christian. 
And I was quite the opposite of a Christian. I was a college student, and I was doing what unbelieving college students do with my life. And he was a believer and tried to share the gospel with me often. And I just, you know, sometimes you have a lot of conversations with someone, but one of them just stands out as kind of the the keystone symbolic conversation. Uh, For me and John Paul, that was uh, when he, he tried to talk to me about just my lifestyle, the way that I was sleeping around, the way that I was living. Um, and I'll, I'll give you the, the PG version of what I said to John Paul. But you can imagine a 19, 20-year-old college student, not a believer, saying something like this to his boss. I, I told him, John Paul, you're an idiot. Why? Why would I tie myself down to one woman like you? When I can do all of this with all of the cheerleaders that I want, John Paul, my life is a lot of fun. Your life is boring. You're an idiot. You're wasting your time living for Jesus. Now, thankfully, John Paul didn't fire me. Uh, but we, we did have a number of of very uh, blunt conversations like that about sin and the gospel. And I regularly spoke condescendingly to a man that was old enough to be my dad and was seeking to love me and care for me. And I made fun of him and made him feel stupid. I attempted to make him feel stupid. But that's the attitude of unbelievers, isn't it? These are the kinds of things that they say to us. So not only are they living in sin and it's going really well for them, they seem to have a lack of troubles, but then they talk to us like we're the fools. Not only do they speak against God's people, but you'll notice in the next verse, they speak against God Himself. Look at verse 9. It says, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. You can see the picture that Asaph is painting, and them just pridefully, their words are just strutting through the earth, speaking against God. They tell everyone, they're not afraid to tell everyone how stupid they think God is. You see all the celebrities and their opinions, and we hear it from our neighbors and unbelieving family members, how foolish it is to believe the Bible, how stupid it is to believe in a God The result of this in verse 10, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Now, there's some pronoun confusion, and going to the Hebrew doesn't really straighten that out for you here. His people. Is this God's people, or is this the scoffer's people, the the wicked person's people? Um, Whichever, whichever it is in this verse, both of them are true, right? Both God's people and the scoffer's people seem to look to them, and in the context of this psalm, say like, I I can't see what's wrong with what they're doing. Look at the way that they live. It's going really well for them. The point is, in this verse, there's, there's crowds of people gathering around them, flocking to hear what the boastful fools have to say, and they say, do it my way. Buy my book. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'll teach you how to live your life. Don't waste your life living for Jesus. Look how well it's working out for me. Look at my cars. Look at my women. Look at my houses. Look at my lifestyle. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? 
Is there knowledge in the Most High? Rhetorical questions indicating a negative answer. In other words, God does not know. The Most High has no knowledge. He doesn't know how to tell you to live your life. He doesn't know. The famous sinners all say you're wasting your time trying to do it God's way. Do it my way, they say. And Asaph is admitting, yeah. What in the world's going on? Because of these three lines of reasoning, Asaph is struggling. These are the three things that he looks out and says, look at this. This doesn't make sense. Their lack of troubles, their lives of transgression, their lips of treason. I mean, they ought to have been struck dead by now, but instead they're prospering. And now having reviewed his three lines of evidence, Asaph will now summarize the struggle. Are you ready for that? Verse 12. He says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. That's his summary. You see this? Look at this. Look at the wicked. Look how good it's going for them. They're always at ease. They're increasing in riches. That's not the real problem, though. That's not the real problem. No, the the real problem is the next verses. This, this is Asaph's struggle. These next verses, this is the heart of the matter. It's not so much about them. It's about me. What about me, God? What about me? Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. There's this inside-outside, inside-outside thing happening here. Listen to it again. All in vain have I kept my heart clean, that's on the inside, and washed my hands, that's on the outside, in innocence. And all the day long, and here's the results of that, right? So basically, I'm living for God on the inside and the outside. And what's the result? Verse 14, all the day long I have been stricken, that's on the outside physically, and rebuked every morning. This weight on my conscience on the inside. I feel guilty about my sin. He says, man, on the inside and on the outside, I'm living for Jesus. And on the outside and on the inside, it does not feel like it's going well for me. This is hard. I am struggling. So his summary of the problem here in verses 12, 13, and 14, to point at the believers and to point at the unbelievers He says the unbelievers out there are parading their wickedness around on full display with a clear conscience and no consequences. I'm living for Jesus in my heart and in my behavior, and I'm getting beat down in my conscience and in my circumstances. That's the apparent evidence that Asaph presents. That's the problem. That's the struggle he faced. And I think as we walk through these verses... We, we're not above this struggle. We've all thought these things. We all face these kinds of temptations, and especially when life gets difficult, especially when we are stricken. You strive to honor God with your business, and your company is barely scraping by. 
That other guy, he's cutting corners, cheating, lying to clients, and his company is thriving. He's not doing things, you're trying to do things according to the Bible. He doesn't even own a Bible. He doesn't care. But it seems to be going really well for him. You fight through the tangled hair and the bathroom territory disputes to get your kids ready for church on a Sunday morning. But as you pull out of the driveway, your neighbor waves at you. He's loading the golf clubs in the back of the new truck. Just this week in our church, you look at families who are serving in three or four different ministries their lives just pouring God's grace out into the lives of so many people, giving of themselves for the glory of God, the blessing of His people, and then why are they the ones whose kid gets inoperable cancer? Why are they the ones whose wife wakes up blind Thursday morning? Why are they the ones in the hospital with heart complications? Why are they the ones getting blood work back from the doctor with bad news? So you could could say, we understand this temptation that Asaph faced. If you're a believer and you're just trying to live for God and do things His way through great distress and difficulty, and then you look around and see people living in sin and bragging about it and strutting around and succeeding, you understand this temptation. You can identify with Asaph here. And guess what? That is why Asaph wrote Psalm 73, because he knew there is no temptation that has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able. When you're tempted, he'll provide a way of escape in order that you might stand up under it. Asaph wrote this psalm because he knew he wasn't the only one. Here's the good news. You'll remember he said at the beginning of this in verse 2, look at it there, he said, my feet had almost, almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He came out the other side of this temptation and he wants you to see what helped him. He wants to comfort you with the comfort with which he has been comforted. Asaph's just kind of put it all out there. I mean, if you only read the first half of this psalm, you'd be like, bro, you can't say that in church. He's put it all out there, but he's going to end this psalm in a really good frame of mind, and we will do well to watch how he turns the corner. So, you'll see now the fight back to clarity. And we've tried to organize it on the slide so you can see there's actually a a two-sided parallelism to this psalm that's really pretty remarkable. He's thinking poorly over here, comes to this initial conclusion. Now he's going to fight back to clarity, look at the real evidence, and then come to the proper conclusion in the end. So the fight back to clarity in verses 15 through 22. First, Don't say the first thing that comes to mind. Verse 15, Asaph says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. 
He says, man, all this crazy stuff I've been thinking, all these doubts I've been having, if I would have said this out loud before I sought better understanding and clarity, I would have betrayed God's people. I would have put a stumbling block in front of those who seek to follow Jesus. Yes, if the worship leader can write a song about the temptation to envy the wicked and doubt God's goodness, then one of the applications we should walk away from with this is we should be able to talk about this too. Oh, I never doubt God's goodness. Okay, you never lie either. I always trust the sovereignty of God when I go through trials. I think we can lay aside our pretentiousness and be honest about the fact that we struggle with this and based on the fact that Asaph wrote this in the Bible. We can talk with each other about this too. But we need to do it wisely. Struggling isn't an excuse to go airing out our dirty laundry of doubts everywhere. We have a responsibility not to allow our moments of weakness to become permanent temptations to other believers. You don't want to plant seeds of doubt in other people's minds by saying a bunch of dumb stuff out loud. One commentator says, uh, Plummer says, and if you are ever going to study the Psalms, you just need to buy the Plummer commentary. It's just like the best commentary on the Psalms. That is uh, an act of worship as you read through it, the way he unpacks God's word for you. Plummer says on these verses, we do a great wrong to believers and a special harm to weak Christians when we tell our foolish and wicked thoughts. If we cannot yet explain God's ways, let us say nothing until such a time as we can get the key to unlock the mystery of His providence. Often, we best glorify God by silence. You'll notice even in this psalm, Asaph didn't write this song while he was struggling because it didn't end at these verses, but rather he wrote it after he had overcome the temptation and was thinking rightly again to help get other people back on track when they struggled with this. He didn't only throw out the doubts. He threw out the doubts so that people would say, yeah, yeah, I struggle with that sometimes too. And then he can say, now this is what helped me. Come with me. Come on, this way. It's going to be all right. So don't say the first thing that comes to mind. Instead, second, Second way to fight your way back to clarity, seek to understand even when it's hard. Look at verse 16. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It can feel that way sometimes. I, I don't know if I have the mental resolve to really push forward. I don't know if I really have the unction to keep going and thinking through all of this. Well, Sometimes we can be tempted to just sit there in the problem, but our biggest problem is when we don't do anything about it. It it takes purpose and time. It might take reading and study. It takes going back to God's Word and God's people and to God in prayer. But we need to make the intentional effort to seek understanding and not just land on doubts and stay there. You won't find understanding in the streets abroad. You'll find them in the sanctuary of God. And that's what he says third. It's part of his fight back to clarity. 
in verse 17. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. So third fight, way to fight back to clarity is to seek God's grace in the spiritual disciplines. You say, well, he just mentions the sanctuary here. Couldn't he just open up his Bible at home? No, because back then they didn't have one of those. It's only we in the last 500 years who've had the privilege of having God's Word printed to carry around with us and toss into the back seat and walk in and out of the house with. And in Asaph's day, you had to go to the sanctuary. You had to go to the temple. You had to go to the tabernacle to, to read, to study the Word of God, to fellowship with God's people. They, they had no copies of the Bible. And so when he says, it was hard to understand until I went into the sanctuary of God, he means I got serious about the spiritual disciplines. I went to get in the Word. I went to go and fellowship with God's people. I went to go and pray. It's good to summarize the spiritual disciplines. All of the, you can make long lists and people have of the spiritual disciplines over, over, that are taught in Scripture. And the three big categories of the spiritual disciplines are the Word, Bible intake, fellowship, with God, spending time with God's people, and prayer, which is to speak back to the Lord. So, to hear His voice in the Word, to belong to His body in the fellowship of the saints, and to have His ear in prayer. That's the idea that Asaph is getting at here when he says, I went into the sanctuary of God. And he says, this thing, this was the very turning point for me, was getting myself before God in His Word and in prayer, in fellowship and in prayer. This is... Um, as I was once told, we, we lived in North Hollywood for a time during seminary, which I don't recommend. Um, I think it was part of God's personal sense of humor in my life to have us move to Hollywood to go to seminary. But we lived there and we managed our apartment building, right? And it's this four-story building, uh, little rooftop thing, and the stairways go up to the roof. And uh, one of our responsibilities each morning is to, to do a property walk. You just kind of go around and walk and make sure the right doors are locked and the, the gate is functioning and there's no lights that are burned out and the things are all kind of in order as they're supposed to be. There's not any broken glass out front, hypothetically speaking. And my wife went to do the property walk one morning and I'm in the kitchen. I can't even remember what I was doing, but she went up one staircase and across the roof, as we would typically do, and then back down the other staircase. And when she walked into the staircase, there was a homeless man sleeping there. And, of course, he jumped up, and him and my wife get into a, I don't know, not a fight, but it wasn't pretty. And he's trying to stay, and she's wanting him to leave, and somehow she gets him to start running down the stairs. So this massive adult male is running from my wife and I'm in the kitchen of our apartment which is right at the front door to the building. So as this man chased by my wife goes out the front door, I hear, Jason! Jason! And I don't, I don't know what's going on but I know I need to get there very quickly, right? And so I, I run out the door 
and I, I run to the front, and I'm, I'm shooing this guy. Like, what do, you, what do you do? And I'm shooing this guy, like, get out of here, get out of here, shouldn't be in our building, right? And, and he had left, like, drug paraphernalia and things like that. I mean, he clearly shouldn't be there, so it's the right thing to get this guy out, right? We're not just being mean to him. Um, and and he, as he's walking away, he's like, he turns around and goes, man, y'all need to go to church. And we kind of looked at each other like, what? And I just think, I always think of that when I think about telling people, hey man, you really just need to be at church. I think, y'all need to get to church. So I'll tell you, as this homeless guy in North Hollywood told me and my wife, y'all need to get to church. That's what Asaph says here, basically, right? Man, I was struggling, and what finally helped me was I got to church. I got in the Word. We have the benefit in 2022, I can open my Bible sitting in my pajamas in my living room. Asaph couldn't do that. We, we can't fellowship with the body of Christ in my living room, though. Those who are watching the live stream right now, it's a great blessing to them that they can have the Word of God delivered to them. Every single one of them would tell you it's not the same as being here. They'd much rather be here with us. There's something special about being together physically with God's people. It has an effect on us. And so Asaph says, as he sought to turn the corner of this temptation, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. See, he got his focus off of the unbeliever, off of himself, off of the circumstances of his life, and he gets in the word and prayer and fellowship and he looks up to God and everything changes. And sometimes we fall down because we refuse to look up. When we've done that, when we've looked up to God, we begin to see more clearly. Now we can, we can look at them, the unbelievers, we can look at us, and we can look at our circumstances, and we can start to see the actual evidence now. In verses 4 through 12, verses 18 through 24, the slides got it right, I don't in my notes, but in verses 18 through 24, we see the actual evidence. Take a look at it with me there. I want you to notice as we look at this, this whole psalm, he's been talking to us. It's been addressed to the reader, as it were, pointing at the unbeliever, pointing at his own life, pointing at his circumstances. Starting here, not only is he pointing to God, he's also talking to God. His head is in the game, and the rest of this psalm, after this turning point, is addressed to God, the whole rest of it. Now, now watch, because he has now lifted his eyes to heaven and now has the ability to see earth more clearly. We see earth with the greatest clarity when our eyes are fixed on heaven. The first thing he sees, the actual evidence, number one, their eternity. In verses 18 through 20, Asaph realizes, if I'm going to compare my life with theirs, it's kind of stupid to only compare this life and leave eternity out of the comparison. He said in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, verse 18, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. It's interesting that he started this psalm saying, my steps had nearly slipped, but now he says, it is the unbelievers who are set by God in slippery places. 
Asaph says, I almost fell, but God is going to knock them down. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. This is a picture of the judgment to come, right? Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Have you ever had a dream? Hi, good morning. Let's try again. Have you ever had a dream? Yes, we have. You wake up and it's over. The the amazing thing about dreams is how real it feels when you're in it, right? I mean, the, the most bizarre things can happen in your dream. You're in one house and you open a door and you walk into a room and you're like, this isn't the same house. You didn't notice that in your dream. That just seemed perfectly normal. In your dream, like the most bizarre things can happen. It still feels completely real. You wake up, five minutes later, you're not even thinking about that anymore. In most cases, five days later, you can't even remember that dream. That's the picture Asaph paints of this life. We're going to wake up in eternity. We'll look back and say, man, that all felt so real. But this, this is real. When we wake up in eternity, we will realize how brief and temporary this life was. And the vast, endless timeline of eternity will stretch out ahead of us with no sadness and no pain and no trials and no tears. Unbelievers will wake up to that same endless timeline, but Asaph says God will be waking up as their enemy. God is rousing himself to take vengeance on them. Asaph realizes he's been thinking only in temporal terms, right? The the temporary apparent success of the wicked is only just that. It's temporary and apparent. What play would you chop act three off of? What song would you listen to without the ending? You can't stop November Rain at the five-minute mark. You missed Slash, like wailing on the guitar for two, three minutes straight. What movie would you stop in the middle and then judge the whole? That was a terrible movie. Well, you didn't watch the whole thing. Ah, but the ending is what makes it so great. I don't need to see the ending. That movie stinks. So we wouldn't do this with plays or songs or movies Don't do that with this life. Eternity is the part that makes it so great. When we factor eternity into the equation as we look at their lives and our lives, the situation completely changes by by an infinite order of magnitude. So the first actual evidence that Asaph considers here is their eternity. Second, he considers my depravity. In verses 21 and 22, as he considers the actual evidence, he sees how wrong he's been. And in verses 21 and 22, he confesses to God, fully acknowledging the weight of his sin. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, the verbs here are reflexive. That means it could literally be translated, my soul embittered itself. I pricked my own heart. 
he describes the self-inflicted pain of allowing himself to meditate on the wrong things. He recognizes running off into those doubts did not bring him joy, but bitterness, sadness, and pain. Not only that, but his own limited perspective made him feel like a, like a dumb animal trying to make sense of God's world. He recognizes, I'm in no place in my depravity, in my sinfulness, in my limited perspective. I'm in no place to be making judgment calls about the, the working of God in the world from my limited position. Verse 22, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He's confessing to God. The word beast there is like, the plural would be cattle. It's like a word for cow. He says, I was as dumb as a cow. If you've ever owned cows, you know what a fitting illustration this is for us when we have set our minds in the wrong perspective. Cows can be stubborn and hard-headed, especially when they're wrong. Uh, We had a couple of milk cows a few years back, and um, getting rid of them was the best thing that ever happened to us. Uh, our, our neighbor raises meat cows, and he's got water rights in Chino, right? And that means he can, like, do flood irrigation on his property. We've got, like, a little 12-gallon-a-minute well, and this guy can, like, open the floodgates. And, like, the whole field floods with water, and everything blossoms green, right? And we're, like, going to Olson's to buy bales of hay to feed the cows, and I often wondered if my cows looked over, if, if they had the perspective to think, look how much greener the grass is, literally, on the other side of the fence. I mean, like, we're standing in dirt and, like, dried up weeds. I can't even eat this stuff. Like, I can't get my neck far enough over this barbed wire. Like, look, at, and there's this like, sprawling acreage of green field. Ironically, though, as milk cows... Milk cows, man, they live long and spoiled lives. Meat cows, they're just being fattened up for the slaughter in a couple of months. And it's just a really great picture of how limited our perspective can be sometimes. I love it that Asaph uses that as like an illustration of kind of his own perspective. Like, man, I was like a, like a cow towards you, God. I didn't know what I was talking about. Having his focus on himself, on the unbeliever, on his circumstances made him think ignorantly, like he didn't know any better. Now, with his eyes set on God, his mind set on the truth of his word, and his heart set on repentance, he kind of walks into this spiritual renewal. He's considering their eternity, his depravity, and third, God's proximity. Look at verse 23. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. He recognizes he has something that the unbelievers don't. God has been with him every step of the way. You know, we think of the psalm, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. That's kind of his point here. Yeah, they might be out there enjoying those things, and I might be in here suffering, but God's holding my hand. God's been not just with him, but he says, you hold my hand. God's been helping him. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. God has not left us without life's instructions, without clear thinking about things. 
but he guides us through his word. The, the unbeliever may appear to be successful, but the reality is it's actually really easy to appear to be successful when there's no clear definition of success. God has guided us with his word. He has clearly defined what a successful life should look like, and that's not it. God guides us. His word shows us the way, and that way may include suffering in this life, but Jesus lived a perfect life, and it was filled with suffering. I think it's a good reminder for us when we think about these struggles. We may often fall into these temptations. We can take those things to the Lord in prayer. We can come to His Word for instruction, but ultimately, we're not going to always do this perfectly. We are, we're going to drop the ball. We're going to give in to these temptations sometimes. We're going to give in to our doubts and our discouragement and our envy of the wicked. And that's why the one who lived a perfect life of suffering died on the cross in your place and in mine to take the punishment for all of our sin, including every time we ever doubted God, every time we were ever envious of the wicked, every time we ever were grieved by our circumstances to the point of sinning against God or sinning against others. The Lord took all of that sin and put it on His Son, Jesus, at the cross, who had lived a perfect life, even through His suffering, lived a perfect life. God put our sin on Him, and when Christ died, He took the penalty for our sin. And he was raised again on the third day so that we could have newness of life. So we could be given his spirit now living in us to empower us, to strengthen us, to to help us understand his word, to help us benefit from the fellowship of the saints, to even pray for us when we don't know what we ought to pray. We've now been given the Spirit. By turning from our sin, putting our faith in Christ, we're born again to a new life, which is not a life free from suffering, but it is a life that is eternal with Him. It's easy for us to lose perspective of the fact that Asaph's apparent evidences were only just that, they were apparent. The reality is, Many unbelievers suffer just like we do. That's not just people who follow Christ. Many unbelievers live in poverty. Many unbelievers are lining the hospital uh, halls too. We're not the only ones, but we have God walking with us through the trial. He guides us. He walks with us. And notice the progression here. Starting in verse 22, I was like a beast. Then in verse 23, I am continually with you. In verse 24, and afterward, you will receive me into glory. This is past, present, future. There's a progression happening here. He's with the Lord. Even when he was like a beast towards God, God was with him, holding his hand, not going to let him get, he's not going to let him fall into this trial ultimately. He will bring him out the other side. He says, afterward, you'll receive me into glory. Now, Asaph's banging on all cylinders. He's looking into eternity, recognizing this life is not all there is. This is like, it reminds me of Job 19, and Asaph would have likely had a copy of Job in the sanctuary. Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand upon the earth, 
And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. Yeah, I'm going to go through trials. Yeah, I'm going to probably end up in the hospital. Yeah, this body's going to die. But God is going to bring resurrection to my dead life. And I will see God in my own flesh, with my own eyes. Now his feet are firmly fixed on the rock of the gospel. His gaze is locked on target. Jesus Christ, my, my God and my King. And now, now he's ready to come to the proper conclusion. Now he's ready to spit some truth gems. Here it comes, proper conclusion, verses 25 through 28. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God, you're my everything. When I'm thinking rightly, Lord, I can see there's nothing on this earth that I want more than I want you, God. And I have you, so I don't need any of that. I see my neighbors with their big this and fancy that, and I know that as tempting as that can be, those things will never ultimately satisfy me. Only God can, and He does. None of that can satisfy my heart, but He does. In verse 26, now he, he looks to the future. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Listen, if we hope in the things of this world, if, if you're here this morning and you are hoping in the things of this world, you are going to be sadly disappointed because you were made with a spiritual component to who you are that requires that God be a part of your life in order for you to be satisfied. Unbelievers try to satisfy that spiritual component with, that, with those physical things, and that's often why they have so much of them, because that is all they have. But it doesn't work either. Sometimes God even takes us through great difficulty in this life to teach us, to grow us, to draw us near to Himself for reasons that we won't understand until we get to heaven you're very likely going to end up in the hospital, and so am I. We're very likely going to have a heart attack or an aneurysm or a stroke. My heart and my flesh may fail. Eventually, your, your heart, your, your flesh will fail. This body is not forever. And in that moment, this world's pleasures will do you no good. But God, in that same moment will be right there with you and he will pour his grace into your heart and your soul will well up with satisfaction. Without him, you will be unsatisfied. You can cram all of the worldly things you can find into your life, but your soul will remain thirsty. This is why Jesus said, anyone who drinks of this water, the water that the world gives, will thirst again. But anyone who drinks of the water that I give out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's interesting. Jesus had this picture in, the, in John 7 there that you keep drinking of the things of the world, you're going to stay thirsty. You drink of the, the water that I give, you'll be so satisfied it will flow out of you. You will become a source of satisfaction for others. Uh, that's, that's exactly how he ends Psalm 73, too. Look at the last line. He says, that I may tell of all your works. What an interesting place to end that struggle. He's come full circle, and now he wants everyone else to know, too. 
He has been so satisfied by greater things that the things of this world don't hold any weight for him anymore. I told you what I said to my manager, John Paul. I'll tell you what he told me back. I've just never forgot it. This was 20-something years ago, so this is just the best paraphrase I got for you. He said, why do I want to sleep with cheerleaders when I could make love to my soulmate? He looked at me in the eyes and said, Jason, there are categories of life and love that you have not even dreamed of. The reason you're so satisfied to play in the dirt is because you can't imagine how great it is to fly in the clouds. I just never forgot that. I, I found out like, something like 15 years later, that he's actually quoting C.S. Lewis to me uh, over chips and salsa. I had no idea, but he did. There are categories of life and love that are so much greater than the things that this world could ever offer us. Verse 27, Asaph says, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Notice he started out the psalm, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and he ends the psalm, but as for me, it is good to be near to God. And the goodness of God is the theme of this psalm. Good forms an inclusion, bracketing the entire psalm. We, we look around, we see so many unbelievers who hate God doing so well. It can be this great temptation for us to doubt God's goodness to us when we suffer and when we struggle. So Asaph has walked us through this morning how to fight that temptation with clarity for the truth. Ultimately, though, this reminds me of the Walmart principle of parenting. You know what I'm talking about. You take your kids to Walmart when they're young and you're kind of walking through and of course they want to go to the toy aisle and there in the toy aisle, lo and behold, you find other children and they are misbehaving. These other kids are knocking things off of the shelves and hitting their sister with a big box of Legos and screaming and whining at mom and dad and throwing themselves down on the floor in this huge temper tantrum that mom and dad won't buy them a $120 box of Legos and you get the picture. But here's the moment. It's when your kids look up at you. I look back at those kids and they're like, those kids are misbehaving. Yes, they are. And if, if you do that, we're going to go out to the car. We're going to have a little conversation. They say, Daddy, why can they get away with that? But I can't. Isn't someone, shouldn't someone discipline them? Yes. Someone should discipline them. Well, kids look up, Daddy, are you going to discipline them? Because, like, you're like the grand master of disciplining children, right? I mean, you're the only one who's ever disciplined us. It's, that's, it's, you discipline all children, don't you? 
aren't you going to discipline them, Dad? No, because they're not my kids. And that's not going to go well for them long term. But I'm not going to discipline them. See, God is actively involved in the lives of His children, bringing about their greatest good and their maximum joy, even if the road is hard and we may feel that others get away with things we don't. And that's okay, because they're not His kids. And that's not going to go well for them in the long run. But as for us, the nearness of God is our good. Would you pray with me? Lord, we cherish passages like Psalm 73 because uh, they so clearly convey the very struggles that we often face in this life. Your word is so helpful to us, God. And we just confess to you, Lord, we do often look out at unbelievers and see how well things are going for them. We, we often are envious. We often think, I, I want to sin like that. We often think, why is it going so well for them and it's going so hard for me? Lord, we've been faithful to you. Why are we in the hospital? Why are we struggling? Why are we going through trials? God, would you help us like Asaph in those moments? to recognize eternity in light of that reality? Would you help us to not be quick to speak our doubts out loud, but instead to bring them to the sanctuary, to weigh them against your word, to bring them into the fellowship, to pray, to talk with you about those things. And we pray, God, that you would renew our hearts. We know that there is no temptation that has overtaken us except that which is common to man. God, you're faithful and you won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. So God, in the moment of temptation, remind us of your word. Draw us into prayer. Strengthen us with the fellowship of your people. Cause us to see eternity and the nearness of our God. Lord, take us by the hand and guide us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.